Welcome to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection, and we are dependent on you, our community, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny and either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link through which we get a small percentage of all your purchases. Your support will allow Danny to continue his captivating talks and interviews. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg. This is Rock and Rolls, and I'm excited today because I'm talking to Ben Lee, who's a friend and also someone I've worked with as a manager for seven years. This is the first time I've ever done a podcast with someone I work with, but the idea of doing something about the combination of spirituality and the so-called real world and roles, there's nobody who's grappled with this more as an artist than, than Ben. So, Ben, um, you started your career at 14 with Noise Addict and, and were making albums for a long time. And then, as an old man of 26, in 2005, you do Awake is the New Sleep. And I went on Wikipedia and they have this great line. It says, the album showcased the much brighter positive side of Lee's personality in contrast to his previous darker musings. <laughs> That's quite true, I suppose. <laughs> so, so you know, by that time, you'd 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 worked with the Beastie Boys, you'd toured the world, you'd you'd uh, see, you know, been nominated for awards, you'd been on television. Um, what, what what was it inside you that pivoted uh, to take some of what was inside yourself spiritually into into your art form? Well, quite honestly. For me, existential yearning was always a part of my psychological makeup. I'm sure it is everybody, but I really remember like I went to a Jewish day school and I'd be like debating with the rabbis. And when we went on school retreats, which were meant to sort of immerse us more into Torah and uh, philosophical Jewish questions, like everyone else looked at it as a camp and I looked at it actually as a chance to grapple with this subject matter. So I was, um, I always loved, you know, philosophy, I, I think philos, the ancient Greek word, it means a love of wisdom. And I really always had that, but it wasn't a value that was very much reflected in the world around me. So it wasn't so much that something changed in my life, but as I became an adult and surrounded myself more by people that um, shared my passion or reflected that back at me, I felt much more confident in kind of coming out of the closet and sharing what my actual values are. Um, and, so, you know, yeah, yeah. How did Judaism, as it was taught to you, relate to those values? Because I know, obviously, you've, you've publicly expressed interest in many, many other paths, you know, Hinduism and Buddhism and, uh, you know, uh, the ayahuasca and, 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 and other things. Was Judaism too limiting or do you see Judaism as part of this broader um, philosophical, spiritual Yeah, well, world? I suppose like to start with, there's a fundamental belief in God that I always had. So that was never the question for me. The question, like for me, I, I sensed the destination on the horizon. 
And for me, the question was, what is the most effective way to get there? Mm. So my experience growing up Jewish, it was kind of interesting because my parents, they didn't have a Jewish education and neither did my older sisters. And they kind of saw me as, okay, let's give the last one, the little boy, the chance to have the thing we didn't have. So they put me in a Jewish school and I actually became much more literate in religion and spirituality than they had had the chance to do. Um, So it was kind of in the narrative of my family that I would be the one to explore this for the whole family. And it's interesting how those roles play out in our lives. Hmm. Um, But so as I said, I, I mean, I did for sure, I went through, I mean, anytime you're dealing with kind of fundamentalism or orthodoxy in religion, you have to confront the ego that says, I'm right and everyone else is wrong, which you bump into in the scholars and, you know, the Pharisees in the Bible and, you know. Um, But I was not too phased by it. I I can't explain it. This is an aspect of my psychology that I've come to believe must only come from other lifetimes because there's no other explanation for it Mm. why I was able to withstand a religious training without it crippling me spiritually. Mm. Um, Because, you know, there's an interesting Kabbalistic teaching that says if a man teaches religion without teaching spirituality, it's better that he'd never been born. It's it's, it's very strong. It's very strong teaching. But it it gives us a sense of the damage that the mystics understood that religion can cause without spirituality. And, you know, more recently I heard someone say, Truly, if you teach, if you teach that God is love, you're teaching spirituality. If you teach that God punishes, you're teaching atheism. So mm. what I've seen is that a lot of the people who went through the type of cultural and educational experience I went through came out atheists. Right. Um, I do not know why that didn't happen to me, except that my love of God and my love of truth was like too big to be crushed, essentially. <laughs> Well, you entered the musical world kind of in, in in a phase of the punk rock being the ultimate art form, you know, and uh, yeah. and and it was, uh, you know, it was certainly to be a teenager in the early 90s, uh, that was what was happening. And certainly lyrically, that that era of music was pretty dark yeah, and cynical. And that was almost authenticity uh, required cynicism. Yeah, and for me, that was a bit more like play acting. Like I was 14, so mm. when I listened back to the music I was making, it's like I was writing through the lens of what I thought were cool subject matter or people wanted to hear. But I think more than anything, you know, we're doing this noise attic box set, obviously, yeah. like for tomorrow, you know, and so I've listened back through all this stuff I did when I was 14, 15, and it's obviously incredibly harrowing to do that as, a, as an adult. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it's not a pleasant experience, but... The thing I'll say about it is the music is quite awful um, in a musical sense. Um, But there's something in it which I can only say is chutzpah. Yes. In that the courage and the audacity with which to begin a path in music with the gatekeepers. There are no gatekeepers welcoming us in. We just said we're doing it and then the gatekeepers open the gates, right? And that... What I've realized is that, like, it's something missing in modern spirituality is the power of will. 
And that a lot of people, I think, misunderstand that surrender, they think of it as almost like a passivity. Um, but courage and will are incredibly important to succeed on the spiritual path. And what I hear in the early noise addict recordings is that sense of will. And I think that's actually what magnetized people towards what we were doing because it was so unlikely. Mm. When you listen to those recordings, you take away the horrible like recording quality, take away the lyrics, which were kind of wannabe grunge, you know, whatever, uh, take away all these things. And what you hear is just this absurd courage coming out of these 14-year-olds. Mm. And I think that is actually what was the magnetic appeal of that project for people, not, not the formal qualities of the music. Well, if we could just shift the conversation, keying off what you something you said of inside yourself, because this is something I really struggle with and have made wrong choices at sometimes in the past. How do you tell the difference between will and an ego trip? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. because will is required to do great things, and it yeah. comes if it, obviously if it comes from God. It, you know, all of the aspects of a personality are created by God. If you believe God is everywhere, I sometimes I think God created the whole universe except for my personality, but I think that's probably not what happened. So, but but how to distinguish in in one's own head between will to do what your destiny or dharma is to use that word or or an ego trip where you just want to win the argument. Yeah, totally. Well, I think there's a couple things. Like, firstly, when I talk about the will in noise addict, I'm not ex I'm not at all proposing that that was all divine will and I was like doing God's plan. No, 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 no. I said I was shifting the yes, conversation. Yes. No, no, but it's relevant in that within the egoic will, there's often the seed of something quite pure. It's just been contaminated and been sort of co-opted by the ego. So in a sense, all will at its essence has the divine will in it, I believe. But as I've kind of grown older and experimented more in my own psychology, I've come to the belief that like, if we look at all of the mystical texts and all of the stories about the hero's journey, there's actually always a reluctance that comes with God's instruction. Um, there's, it's a weight that we have to carry. There's something we have to carry out that we'd actually prefer not to and for me, that is kind of like the, uh, the greatest signifier that there's an aspect of guidance in something um, when we have to struggle against ourselves to achieve it. Not that it's something that's going to bring us a type of emotional glory <clears throat> or a type of um, sort of celebration of our personalities, but something that feels like, oh, why me? Like, you know, that when Jesus is on the cross and he says, Father, take this, take this cup from me unless it's your will. Um, he's saying, look, I'll do it. I'll do the thing you want me to do, but I'd rather not. If there's an easier way, give me a right. And <laughs> yes. I think that is, that's a really important thing to begin to identify in our psychology. Like when are we hopped up and excited about our will and when are we doing it simply because it must be done? Mm, mm. I mean, one other thing I'll just say about discerning the ego from – the inner being is something I've learned that's kind of like been really useful is that the ego speaks in long and elaborate arguments. So when we're defensive about something we've done, the ego will go into like pages of rhetoric 
about why it was okay and how this was an exception. And I mean, it goes on and on. The ego can really write like, you know, it's like um, legal depositions. Yeah. Whereas the inner being just says yes or no. And that's another way that I've used to identify mm. what, type, what type of voice am I hearing. Right, right. So just to jump around, because I made these notes and I'm trying to have a good variety of colors here in this. Speaking of inner voices, you wrote something on Facebook, maybe you put it elsewhere, about the kids' movie Inside Out. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I, I thought as a parent, my kids obviously are older than yours, so I didn't have to deal with that particular film. But But I thought that both as a... You know, as a as a parent and as just a person watching a movie, I I thought you really raised some interesting things about it, and and I thought it would be fun for you to talk about that. Yeah, well, look, firstly, I thought the movie was very well made, and I liked the animation, and, and the quality of this type of film being made is quite exceptional. Yeah. So I have a lot of respect for the artist. And this came out what three years ago, two years ago, two yeah, maybe maybe a year or two, I think. Yeah, a year or but, two. Yeah. But but what was interesting was the movie does make has a premise of providing psychological insight to children and you're moving into a slippery territory where i think as opposed to the usual type of covert seeds that are planted about philosophy within films this was very overt and it was making as much as it was playful it was explaining psychology in a certain way yeah it depicts like kind of through animated characters different emotions inside the mind of a child is that is exactly that, exactly yeah. and and what it does is it gives them it personifies each of them and it's sort of a there's like a, a sadness and a happiness and an anger and a disgust and all these things now what's interesting is it's extremely now it's not surprising but it's very much almost like propaganda for the Western way of looking at psychology. And so it's interesting to look at as a study in that, in that Western psychology, the general premise is that everything inside you has a place. It just requires acceptance. It requires giving it a voice. Basically like, you know, almost to an extreme example, it's like, are you angry at your mother? Let it out, punch the pillow. Uh, you know, this is very like right. post-primal scream, psychological uh structure or mode of thinking about things. Whereas from an Eastern thought, which is something that I've thought a lot about and studied, um, there are experiences within the psyche that are true and there are experiences within the psyche that are illusions. And, you know, the Catholics divided it very nicely into virtues and sins. And I don't think we should be scared to look at that structure because it's really it's much like how the Buddhists describe the 10,000 different psychological aggregates or egos or um, all the heads on the Greek monsters. Like the idea that there are a variety of eyes or egos inside us is, you know, this is a sort of not a, not a radical idea. Um, but, but from the more Eastern thought, the virtues actually are true to our nature and the egos or the sins are something that have uh, sort of like imposed themselves on our process so that truly the great work of alchemy of refinement of the personality is to conquer these sides of us that are not serving our heart and not serving our connection to each other to god to the world and now, so how, how is that notion consistent with the kind of western idea of morality because isn't that what morality is supposed to be of making those kind of choices yeah, I do. I think so. Except the only place it seems to veer a little bit away is that 
morality is sometimes expressed in terms of actions. Like, did you take a moral action? Did you say the right thing? Did you visit your friend when they were sick in hospital? Mm. Whereas in Eastern thought, there's much more talk about an inner process. So it's actually the thought or the feeling is the seed of the action. Meaning that if someone murders somebody, it began with a hateful thought. It began with like a very brief, subtle thought that passed through the psyche. And at that moment, the person who had the thought didn't apprehend it and didn't um, oppose it. And they actually fed it and they allowed it to grow and grow until it took the form of an action. So, so in the sense that like the real inner work, which is what most Eastern philosophy is concerned with, but also esoteric Christianity and Judaism is also concerned with it. Real inner process is about dealing with things, with these things at their root in terms of the thought, the feelings, the sensations. So going back to inside out, the problem I had with that film was that the basic premise at the end of it was that the path to happiness is in giving sadness, depression, anger, and disgust their, their rightful place in your psyche. Now, from a place of mysticism, this is an absurdity. Hmm. It's like, this is truly like the road to the abyss. Right. Like we have to see these things as foreign. You know, the Kabbalah says it so interestingly. It says that the, the ego is actually a virus. It's something that was not part of God's intention. It's something that imposed itself and like an infection spread. And our job is to remove it from our psyche and to conquer it. So look, it's like, I, I was kind of pleased that in a way, movies are at least dealing with psychology and dealing with an internal process. But I just felt as a parent, I had to do a lot of explaining to my daughter after right. that I said to her, I said to her, when you're feeling angry at someone, you don't have to make room for that and say, oh, I'll allow that anger and that's okay. You can say, you can say, no, I'm not going to be angry at my friend. That's my brother. That's my sister. I'm happy for them. I don't want to be selfish. I want them to have a happy life too. And so we have to learn to oppose these inner voices, not just give them, like give them the microphone every time they want to talk. Let me, let me um, connect that to another uh, question. It, it, it's not about the movie, but it, it, it has to do with these feelings that, it, that arise or thoughts that arise inside one's mind. Because one of the things to me, uh, when I first started meditating and still comes up sometimes, is uh, I just can't control what the thoughts are that I have. And, and so there's that thing of um, some people would say observing them and watching them is better than, you know, fighting them and repressing them, you know. And, and how does that word repression come into the, the idea that you're expressing? Yeah, I think it's something that's sort of widely misunderstood that if you ever meet you know, a real uh, Buddhist practitioner. Like we work closely with a monastery called the Garden Shatsi Monastery in, um, in India. Um, and they're the first monastery that the Dalai Lama established when he went in exile out of Tibet. They're very interesting people because they're not repressed, but they are controlled. And there's a very interesting argument that I think stems from the ego. Like the ego has given this argument to the West of, well, if you repress it, you'll get cancer. Right. And in a sense, there's sort of a truth to that because we're not talking about repression. Opposition is different to repression. Like when we oppose something, we have to come to know it intimately because it's the enemy. Mm. We're not just ignoring it. Like for me, let me give an example of like my own ambition or uh, um, 
like I have an ego of wanting fame, right? Mm. That manifests so much when I was younger. And as I've gotten older, it's not something I'm repressing. It's something I'm just distrusting because I know right. it. So I say, I say, oh, I know your voice. I've come to know you quite well. And you're not a trustworthy source to me. Mm. So there's no repression in that. There's intelligence. And that's the same you could say for all of what you'd say are the, the sins or the egos in that it's an intelligent choice not to take them seriously and not to, um, not to trust them because they're not, they ultimately don't want what's best for us. Mm. Now, um, let's talk for a minute about the ayahuasca uh, album and your interest in that. Um, for for um, many of us, took I, I took a lot of psychedelics when I was younger and a lot of people involved with MindPod certainly did. Obviously, Ram Dass, a great pioneer of of the awareness of, of, of LSD. And when we, when I first did it, I did look at it as a spiritual thing. It also became a thing for parties and, you know, millions of tablets went out uh, in, uh, you know, without any kind of spiritual context to it. Um, uh, same with peyote and mescaline. There are different ways of using these things. But, um, you know, one of the things in, when he wrote Be Here Now that he wrote about and why he went to India was he said um, the problem with getting high was I always came back down, and um, I'm I'm wondering how how do you apply that construct that a lot of us dealt with with those psychedelics to your work with ayahuasca? Well, firstly, I just want to say because I've had some um, I've reflected on this in that I think at the time when I put that word ayahuasca in the album title. I made an error in that I've come to believe that that plant as a spirit doesn't really desire to be talked about in mm. that way so publicly. So I, I'm happy to talk about it now, but I just want to clarify that because I think I made like sort of a novice mistake in terms of communing with this plant. Um, uh, okay, so something important to think about with inner work is that the goal of meditation of any kind is not to enter a place and then totally remove ourselves from the world, right? What we're seeking is information. Like we're truly exploring, there's a map that's internal and we have to discover it. And all of the great mystics have given, have left that map for us. The Buddha left that map. The Bhagavad Gita, Krishna left that map. Um, the map is there and it's an inner map. Um, but we do need micro illuminations. Mm. We need these moments of meditation, these moments of transpersonal experience. That's what our dreams are each night. Mm. We have this opportunity to move into a non-ordinary consciousness and then to come back to the world. So it's only a problem that you come back to the world if you are trying to get away from it. Mm. But the way I see it is the purpose of amplified states of consciousness is to come back with information. Mm. It's not to stay, it's not to stay there. So I don't really, um, I don't think that plant medicine is for everybody. I'd say that 95% of the way it's being used on the planet is not in service of the process of enlightenment. Um, it's mostly, I think being used within a container that is sort of, this is a whole other interesting subject, but it's often used in a healing kind of container and my belief has come to be that 
the path of healing is not truly the path of enlightenment in that healing happens automatically as we move towards God. We don't need to focus on healing. But when we focus on healing, we're actually sometimes getting stuck in a certain type of loop about the wound and healing and the wound and healing and the wound and healing, as opposed to just saying, no, forwards, forwards, forwards towards the light. And in that case, our wounds will automatically get healed on the way. Mm. Um, But so I don't think the path of working with, you know, sacred plants and things is for everyone. But, you know, there are certain moments in time and there are certain opportunities in certain circles where doors open and this is a space where we move beyond religion. I mean, religion and absolutes and right and wrong and this is the way to do it, that's the way to do it, that is for a certain type of mind that is still grappling with uh, kind of getting their life together in a sense. But then there becomes, you know, what Gurchev called the fourth way, which he also called the way of the sly man, which is saying there's a path beyond structure and beyond religion that has to do with seizing opportunity moment to moment and using our life as a catapult to move forward in our progression. And that's sometimes the space that we can interact with these practices in. Mm. Well, speaking of religion or inner work, um, I, um, as, as, as you know, I, I had a teacher, Hilda Charlton, who I still identify as, a, as, as my principal doorway to trying to know who, who, who I am and to, to, to be in a place of, of, of love. And I will say we're recording this on, on January 29th, which is her Mahasamadhi. Um, but um, and, and, and I know you had a, a, a teacher, I don't know whether you referred to him or her as a guru or, or, or a teacher and I know that you've publicly said you, you no longer are in, that, are in that space but Ramakrishna went through this with a lot of disciples who were always asking him about well is God take form or is God formless and he was always saying you know it's God is formless but can take form you know it's, it's God you know and, 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 and he also said that, that the, the, the path of wisdom absolutely gets you to truth he says but it's really hard in this era and he said the path of devotion is easier for <laughs> yeah i think that's true i think that's true and because i think yeah sorry go ahead so 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 i i am very much um into taking the easier path if it's going to get me to the same place that's just you know i'm a entitled baby boomer i'm just curious about um how how you've grappled with these with these various issues yeah um, so firstly, just to honor what you're saying and the honesty with which you say that, um, that's really impressive and important. And, you know, Buddhism describes the same. There's a spiral path and a direct path. Um, the spiral path is the path of most spirituality. The direct path is the path of mystical death, which is a truly horrific path. Um, but it's, for whatever reason, it's the path that appeals to me. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so there, I think from the way I've come to understand it, a lot of this has to do with what happened at the beginning of the Aquarian age. Um, on February 4th, 1962, there was this astrological shift in which we move from the Piscean age to the Aquarian age. And it's quite interesting because this is sort of a part of our pop culture lexicon 
in that there was a general understanding that something changed in the 60s and you you were there you you, you know that this really did happen um but one of the things that was affected was that the Piscean Age was an age of priesthood. Can I just ask a, you, where, where does this information come from that that was the date? Is that a... Uh, it comes in a lot of different traditions, um, but there's a lot of um, both um, uh, Mayan and esoteric Christian Gnostic teachings about it. There's some discrepancy over the exact date. That's the date I've come to find some resonance with. Um, but either way, even if you just look at it culturally... What happened in the 60s is part of this whole conversation. I mean, yes. you wouldn't be doing this podcast if it weren't for that shift that had occurred, right? No, no question about yeah. it. So, but one of the things that there was a lot of problems with the way that energy was interpreted. Because, um, you know, so this whole idea about, say, Jim Morrison, that, that, and he talked a lot about the Dionysian energy, hmm. and his bandmates still talk about it. Like when you read the, any biographies of the doors or something, they'll talk about him as Dionysus, right? So it's really interesting. But what the vision of Dionysus, there's sort of two visions of all of our, um, all the images from mythology can be understood in two ways, either from the being or from the ego. Now from the being, from a truly like divine understanding of Dionysus, this is like a, um, a vibration of cosmic ecstasy, you know, of mystical ecstasy. But it is still a, a path of abstinence in a sense. Like the way that um, a true mystic interacts with a Dionysian energy is through control of themselves. And then their mind is capable of moving into these spaces, right? Whereas what happened in the 60s was there was a kind of a misreading of this energy and it became free love and drugs and psychedelics and all that sort of thing. So. There was something real that happened, I believe, in the 60s. But, you know, you talk to Ioni, like my wife's dad. Obviously, he was uh, Donovan. He was part of the 60s. And we've seen a lot of the wreckage of families yes. of what happened in that energy. And I think it's very clear that had that energy been understood correctly, it would not have left the wreckage that it left. So we're kind of forced to say okay, something did happen, but it was misunderstood. So one of the things, though, that happened, I moved into a tangent, but one of the things that happened was in the Piscean Age, there was um, an age of priesthood or intermediaries between us and God. And in the Dionysian moment in the Aquarian Age, there was direct communion. So the idea was that no longer... There was no need anymore for gurus, for priests, for intermediaries. The energy had changed and we were meant to seek that within. And I think you saw that impulse in the people that wanted to dance to rock and roll music and wanted to break away from sort of the, um, the internal constraints of the 50s, etc. Um, but still, it was sort of a corrupted experience where they ended up replacing the priests with rock stars, which is also not necessary. We didn't need rock stars to be intermediaries to mystical experience. Mystical experience is the right of every human being. But so in, in, in all of this, what I came to see was that a lot of the constructs I was operating with as a musician, as a spiritual seeker, were still tied up in the misreading of the times from the 60s and also in the Piscean Age. So I naturally thought that you needed a guru. 
I naturally thought also that this um that it wasn't available to me to have direct communion but what I've found in my own experiences is that there are gurus and masters that live on the internal realms and they're yes. much more powerful than any masters that live in a physical form because as soon as something's in a physical form it's also the ego is also there and there's you know there's human foibles and mm. there's a process mm. and that if we have the courage to renounce the human guru and find the internal guru and it is that is truly a death because it's like walking away from our parents but if we have the courage at that moment and what happened to me was in one of my internal experiences in my deep meditations i did connect to an intelligence that was much more powerful than an intelligence i'd experienced in a human guru and suddenly it came to me the teaching that was in one of the teachings i can't remember which gospel but they said you it's impossible to serve two masters mm. and i realized this was a moment of choice mm. and for me it's kind of like you got to take a risk like it's like you're working in the conservative job and suddenly you get the dream job at the startup where they say you can be part of it and you can and you say okay i don't know but i'm going to take the leap yeah gamble everything for love right gamble that's right and that's we get back to noise addict and the chutzpah yeah that at a certain point it takes chutzpah to cut the ties and say i'm going to move into a new space mm. <laughs> that's uh, thank you for that i had not heard you express it in that much uh, depth and it's um, it's it's uh, it's helpful and interesting um so I know some of your work that you've been public about is with these Kalari oils and that and that a lot of or some of the money raised is involved to support um, uh, ancient sacred traditions. Uh, um, so those traditions are still external and involving human people. How, how, how do you reconcile this um, preeminence of the inner um, non-embodied teachings with with wanting to preserve these on the earth these ancient traditions yeah that's a really it's a really good question and it's interesting because the, so the cultures that um I, I work with supporting are the keros of peru and the tibetan buddhist monks and my my feeling about these cultures is they are cultures where gu internal guidance is still valued and is still received and enacted so the culture itself is a container for actual guidance. I mean, the Dalai Lama is a very, very interesting man in that he's very unpredictable. And when you hear his answers to questions, they're not orthodox answers. They're answers from someone dealing with actual internal guidance. And for me, Tibetan Buddhism and the Kero culture, what I've seen of them is they're both cultures that they're still actually working with real guidance. So when we talk about preserving and protecting the cultures, it's not for some sort of like fetish of, oh, I love the way they dress. I love the rituals. I like that would truly, it would almost be like a, a craven image or a false idol. Mm. But what we're preserving is the lineage of teachings that help them connect to their internal source. Mm. And that's what's really important. Um, the, the project with the oils is... It's a project to do with, um, so it's called Koyari Essentials, and it's to do with... And that, that begins with a Q, is that right? Yeah, Q-O-L-L-A-R-I. Yeah, if anyone word, wants to find it, know how to spell it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. so that's, that's actually a Quechuan word from the Keros that means the divine mother who, who provides for her children. 
And the goal of this project was like, so you obviously have watched what's happened in the music industry the last 20 years. And, but I've seen myself surrounded by amazing, creative, charitable people that are not financially independent and don't live in a financially sustainable way. So the goal was to create a business project specifically targeted at sort of the philanthropists of the future. And it sounds like to people that don't understand the difference of setting an intention when you do something, it'll sound very similar to any other business. But what we do is, so we work with an essential oils MLM, like multi-level marketing model. But what we do is we ask each person who comes in who wants to build a business to build in a philanthropic component. So for me, that's supporting the Keros and the Tibetan monks. We have, I have a woman in Australia who started a foundation to um, help teach nurses self-care because nurses have an incredibly high burnout rate. And so she has a thing called the Nurse Wellbeing Task Force. I have another builder who's working on um, help, working with a charity called Hollywood Forward that helps get LA homeless their first apartment. And basically all of these people are doing a business for their own financial independence, but also with a portion allocated to a charity that they're passionate about. So what we what, what our what our thesis is is that we can actually plant a garden of philanthropists by getting people entrepreneurial and getting them ambitious, but for the right reasons. Because these are the types of people that were never drawn into conventional business until they were given a philanthropic sort of motivation to do it. So it's been a really gratifying project in which we can sort of like retrain ourselves about what business means and how we can do it ethically and do it with friends in a team and do it get rich for the right reasons basically mm. Mm. cool and i wouldn't uh i couldn't be me without without asking you to talk about your most recent album oh, yeah. uh love is the great rebellion what is it a rebellion against well, it's a re rebellion against ourselves. So, so this has a lot to do with what I was talking about, like that moment, that gamble everything for love moment, that moment when we sensed that there was an error in the way we did something and we're shown that internally and that can arise through a feeling of shame. I think shame is very underrated in our culture. This is another case where like I think Western psychology has tried to paint shame as sort of like just the work of the church or something. Um, I think shame and guilt are very different. Guilt is about self-punishment. Shame is like a spontaneous feeling of having made a mistake. And I think it's really valuable and we should actually use it more. Um, but when that moment comes up, what to me all the great spiritual teachings have said is that it's not too late. You can rectify it. You can change now. You can rectify. And that word rectification for me has been a really important word in my process. And so the rebellion is that moment where instead of falling into depression and self-punishment and despair, we say, no, I'm going to stand up again. I believe there's hope. I believe a new day is coming. And in a way, that type of rebel is the rebel we need. And this is another like mistake of the 60s, I think, in terms of the understanding of rebellion. Because truly, like, say the rebellion of Jesus, that rebellion was such an important rebellion where it brought us back to morality hmm. as a way from just orthodox observance. Hmm. I mean, that piece that Jesus brought in of love your brother, that actually you're not loving God unless you love your brother, hmm. that is so important. And then the rebellion of the Buddha who said, don't worry about all these gods. Think about your karma. 
keep God out of the picture for now. You're responsible. These are huge rebels, you know, but they're not rebels that rebelled against the establishment for no reason. They're rebels that saw a very specific mistake and tried to bring humanity back to the correct path with compassion and with love and with tenderness. And so that that's the type of rebellion I'm talking about. And that's why it's loving. Love is the great rebellion. Like to choose to be a rebel for the light. I always like the phrase, learn to see the world through the eyes of a rebellious eagle. Yeah, like soar, soar above the world. Where does that phrase come from? It's from a, a South American mystic called Samael on Veor. Really, really spiritual genius but he um but that phrase is so important because we need to kind of soar above the world and see it from a macro perspective and look at and be brave and look at where there's been mistakes and question like the sacred cows but not to destroy to build something more constructive more healthy and more loving in its place Mm. so for anybody who's inspired by the energy and the basic vibe of what you're saying but who doesn't exactly know how to go deeply inside themselves to uh, f- find these um, disembodied uh, t- teachings. Is there anything you've read, seen, or listened to that you would, at this moment in your life, recommend to people? Um, there's an amazing system. There's a worldwide system that I've gotten a lot out of called the Numa system, P-N-E-U-M-A. And that is a really interesting system because it it's a synthesis system that basically tries to identify the philosophic truths in all teachings and find their commonalities and bring them together. So people can Google the Numa system and learn about that. It's a very, very profound, profound piece of work being done there. Um, I, I love the book In Search of the Miraculous by Uspensky. Mm. That is a book about the two years that Uspensky spelt, spent with Gurchev. And it's 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 really the most thorough understanding we have of Gurchev's teachings and Really, really mind-blowing book. Um, there's a book called Revolutionary Psychology by Samael Onveor. Um, that's a wonderful book. Um, I don't know. That's a few things that come Good. to mind. Good. Excellent. Yeah, Good start. Yeah. And honestly, and just but, 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 but more simple than that, the big texts, the Torah, the New Testament, the Quran, the Vedas, uh, the Bodhisattva texts, and the Dalai Lama's teachings. I mean, the major teachings of all religion they contain the truth. Hmm. We just have to learn to meditate and read them with an open heart. Right. And yeah, separate them from the organizational structures that have gotten in the way. Yeah. These aren't, these aren't books for children. You know, yeah. These are books for mature minds. Yeah. Are there books for children that are useful? I think that's more for the parents, you know, like my experience <laughs> has been, my experience has been to like very gently take advantage of the seven years in the beginning of a child's life where their psyche is very open and they're they're not yet really captured by the ego in the same way yeah and really just plant seeds that god is love and there's virtue and there's guidance and to hold themselves to a standard above what they see being played out in their social circle because that is not high enough the truth is you know and and in that time i think the parents can support the children um, there's no school for parents, you know. It's an unfortunate no, thing. No. What do you think of the, um, say, Harry Potter books? I think they're amazing. I, I don't know about the second one. That one I didn't. I, I read only read the first two. Uh. But the premise of it is absolutely right. In that, and that's a, thanks for bringing that up because that is a good suggestion. Um, because what it understands is that each of us feel that there's a magical core within us that 
we want to be recognized mm. for and we want to be trained for. And what is Hogwarts? It's a mystery school. Yes. And the mystery schools, you know, the illusion mysteries and these types of things, the illusion mysteries lasted for 2,000 years for families and children and great philosophers. Um, this was a part of our life and it continues to be, but they're very hard to find. Um, but that she, I don't know whether she understood that consciously when she was writing it, but to know that actual progression on the path involves two things. It involves being, which is the actual recognition of the light within us, which is a totally kind of visceral experience. But then it also involves knowing, which is about education. And everything we're talking about here is connected to education. And that's, it, to go back to what you said about the path of the heart, the, the danger of the path of the heart is that we become what Gurdjieff called a stupid saint. We become so heartfelt that we actually aren't thinking clearly anymore. Mm. Well, Hilda, yeah, Hilda always said, trust in God, but tie up the camels. Exactly, exactly. So we need to be in, involved in the evolution of our being and our knowing. And a Harry Potter has both of those. It has the courage and the magic, but it also has that you have to surrender and be in school and learn and humble yourself and separate from your family. And, you know, there's a lot of philosophic truths in it. Mm. Well, that's a good way to end. I thank you so much for doing this. And uh, I, I, in addition to anything else you get out of this, I urge people listening to please listen to Love is the Great Rebellion. And Danny, one more thing. Just thank yeah, you yeah. in the time, you know, we've worked together. Um, I also, it's longer than seven years, I think, because I, I think I was about 25 or 26 and now I'm 37 but, but <laughs> well, I, a bit decade it's um, hard it's hard I, yeah. I keep uh, you know five years sounds seems like uh, two and so it's it's about 10 but, but yeah, anyway it's, it's closing it's, in on 10 yeah you know just to experience um, a brotherhood with you as someone that takes these questions seriously and also who you know I know a lot of people listening they're probably familiar with you but they don't know you personally and just to express that the way you've supported me in my work over the years, you've never told me what to do. You know, you've never told me this is the right thing for your career, that's the right thing. You've always asked me what do I want to do and how you can best serve. And that to me has been the biggest gift that you've given me as someone working with me. And I just want to take this opportunity publicly to acknowledge that oh. and to say that's a real gift because that's what I've learned is called servant leadership. And it's um it's a it's a rare quality, but it's a really it's a really important one. Well, thanks. I, I learned from uh, Peter Grant. He always said, "Whatever the band wants, that's what's important." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much, my brother. All right, mate. I'll talk to you soon. Later. Thanks for listening to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. We appreciate your support, and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com/slash/danny. Thank you.